let's kind of get a running start into this morning's text, part three, four-part study through the Olivet Discourse. The sun is setting Tuesday evening over Jerusalem. Jesus, the disciples, are making their way out of the city, up the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, heading to a suburb known as Bethany. It's where Jesus was staying during what we know as his week of passion. Would include his crucifixion and his resurrection, began with his triumphal entry. But as they're making their way out the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, the disciples are gloating over how awesome and majestic the temple happens to be. And this begins a bit of a conversation. As a matter of fact, they take a break there on the hillside, on the side of the Mount of Olives. It's a picturesque view of the city itself. And Jesus presents a sermon. It's known as the Olivet Discourse because it's a sermon given on the Mount of Olives. And the subject matter and context is a discussion of the end of the age and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, up until this point, we've been tracking our way through the sermon, just in way of recap. The first third of the sermon Jesus describes the first half of a period of time known as Great Tribulation, also known as Daniel's 70th week, a period of seven years of tribulation climaxing in Jesus' second coming. During this first half, these first three and a half years, Jesus is warned of the arrival of a great deceiver. The Antichrist will deceive the world Jesus also warns that a great war will break out where, quote, nation will war against nation. Yes, war is common to the human condition, but something that will be occurring at this juncture of human history will be unique. It will be different. It will be unlike anything that's ever come before. And this will lead to the third point that Jesus warns that following war would come periods of inflation, famine, pestilence. The first three and a half years of tribulation will carry with it devastating physical effects to not just the world, but humanity. According to Revelation 6 verse 8, one quarter of the world's population during this period of time will die. But it would seem that even in the face of such judgment, that these effects seem to be dwarfed by an even greater conflict occurring, and that being a spiritual conflict, a battle between good and evil, between righteousness and wickedness. Multiple passages indicate, and the Olivet Discourse seems to substantiate, that though the church has been removed from the earth during this great period of wrath, there will still be a moving of God's Spirit. There will be people... That when they see the church raptured and they see the Antichrist uh, arriving and we, and we see the, the, the pulling together of the global resources and we're seeing the things play out that Scripture so clearly defines, there will be a time where people's eyes will open to the reality of what's occurring. Though maybe they had rejected Jesus, there will be many at this point that will recognize the error of their former ways and will convert. And, 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 we, and we noted last Sunday, that this decision to follow Jesus will come with grave consequences. Your life 
will be weighed in the balance. And yet, in the midst of all of these things and this revival and this persecution, Jesus is at work. You know, we closed saying, will I forsake the world and live my life for Jesus? That's the decision we face. But in this time, the decision will change. Will I forsake the world and instead lay down my life for Jesus? There will be no middle ground. There will be a revival in these 144,000 witnesses and these two witnesses in Jerusalem. There will be people coming to faith and a work taking place in Israel. There will be a persecution that will follow. God's work even in the midst of judgment. Now the core question that kind of initiated this discourse was when the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign or a distinguishing event of your coming and the end of the age? Like the disciples wanted to know what one singular event they could look for that would indicate the end was nigh and his return was soon. Now at this point, everything Jesus has, des has described in his sermon. He's defined as, quote, the beginnings of sorrows. It's a, a terminology that describes labor pains. When they begin, the end is coming. The baby will be birthed. There will be periods of intensity followed by some lulls, followed by more intensity, followed by some lulls, that this beginning of sorrows is the, uh, the start of contractions. They'll get more intense the closer we get to Jesus' ultimate coming. And yet, while we've seen the beginning of sorrows, indications, where when we see this happen, when we see that happen, and this happen, and that happen, that things are playing out, that the prophetic clock has re-engaged, these beginnings of sorrow still aren't the sign that the disciples had asked for. They had requested one event, and Jesus has laid out a lot. And he's kind of summarized it by saying, when you see these things happening, things are starting, things are beginning. But this isn't the sign you should be looking for, the indication that is all coming to a head. Verse 14 of chapter 13, Jesus here now answers specifically their question, by telling them a sign to look for that marks the end in his coming. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, and not to be confused with what that is, Jesus says it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it not, let the reader understand. Now we'll just pause for there for a moment. Jesus is clear in his explanation that the singular event that marks the beginning of the end of the age and marks the soon arrival of himself, his person, back to earth, will be, quote, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, our immediate question is, what is this abomination of desolation? Now, the first key to our understanding is that Jesus directly connects here a future event that he says is the abomination of desolation with the descriptions that were provided prophetically by a man named Daniel. And so we must ask and consider, what did Daniel have to say about the abomination 
of desolation. So you following me? Jesus is connecting a future event, this abomination of desolation, with descriptions provided by Daniel. So to understand what Jesus is really describing, we must go to Daniel. Now to give you some recap, in Daniel chapter 9, we have the first mention of this specific event towards the end of an incredible prophecy dealing with this final seven-year period of great tribulation. It's known, and I've mentioned it before, as Daniel's 70th week. For context, Daniel and Babylon was really worried that because of the people's sin and idolatry and wickedness, because they hadn't obeyed God and the commands of God, Therefore, they had received the judgment of God and had been exiled, taken from their land. Daniel in Babylon is concerned that maybe because of all of these things, God's done. That the Babylonian captivity was in a way God kind of wiping his hands of Israel, saying, I'm through with you. And Daniel's really weighed with that. He loves his people and he loves God and he's a noble man. And so with this concern, God comes to him and reaffirms Affirms, reassures that Daniel, I'm not done with Israel. As a matter of fact, I've set aside, and this is the 70 weeks prophecy, chapter 9, giving you the play-by-play. 490 years I've set aside to deal with Israel. I'm not done. I have a plan. I've given 490 years, and then and then we're even given a list of all the things that God is planning to tie up prophetically in regards to his handlings of the people of Israel. He gives when this 490 years begins with the decree from the Persian king Xerxes to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild their homeland. He then clocks out that 483 years from that day, Messiah the prince would appear. Sure enough, 32 AD, April 6, Jesus arrived riding on a donkey exactly 483 years to the day of Xerxes' decree, playing out 483 years. And yet something interesting occurs within the midst of the prophecy. There seems to be a pause because Daniel is told that Messiah the prince would be cut off. And thus, though Daniel couldn't see it, we know that in this pausing of this 490-year timetable, at the 483rd year, there would be a pause of which we're still in the midst of, a period of time that Jesus refers to elsewhere and Paul talks about known as the times of the Gentiles or when the gospel went to us, the church age. And so when the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, Prophetically, God's handlings with the Jews were set aside. He turned his attention to those who accepted Jesus. The work that the Spirit did in the world, the Roman world, continuing today through the church. But there will come a point where the church is removed and we get back to this timetable because there are still yet seven years remaining for God's dealings with the Jews. This is where we get seven years of great tribulation. Now, I want to read one specific verse that sets the context for the abomination of desolation and this period of great tribulation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. I'm pretty sure we'll put it on the screens for you, so you don't have to turn there. But we're told, then he, now in context, the he is the Antichrist, and that's established in other passages and even in the context of earlier references within chapter 9 itself. He, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant 
with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, and, and understand this, this, this word week, it implies to a set of sevens. It seems to be more a reference in context to it being years. So there'll be a covenant of one week or seven years prophetically. In the middle of this week, at the three and a half year mark, he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. This is where we get the abomination of desolation or the abomination which causes desolation even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, Daniel here, and we're not going through a, a real detailed exposition of his particular prophecy, but we're pulling out a few ideas important to the Olivet Discourse. The first thing is that in this prophecy, we have a timeline for when events occur. Daniel's prophecy states that the final seven years of history, great tribulation, will begin not with the rapture of the church, but instead when he confirms a covenant with many for one week. So the Antichrist will bring about a covenant he will, he will bring peace to the Middle East, to the world. People will rally around this leader because he accomplishes something no one has ever been able to accomplish before. Peace on earth in our day. This great deceiver, the Antichrist, as Jesus has mentioned, he will convince the world to follow him as they enter into this period of prosperity. Now there's a question. What does he do to begin? It's a sign, it's a covenant with many for one week. Most believe that this will involve a covenant, once again, in context to some other things in regards to Daniel and the setting behind his prophecy, that the covenant will be specifically with the Jewish people, that there will be a peace accord with Israel. Now, Daniel, giving us the beginning, and we know the end, the consummation, being Jesus' second coming, he provides us here what happens halfway into these seven years. Look at it again. In the middle of the week, three and a half years from a peace accord, he, the Antichrist, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. It would appear that halfway into this peace agreement with Israel, the Antichrist reneges. He goes back on his promises and he does something that is called an abomination. An abomination that is so devious, so outrageous, that this one act, this sign, will set the course for the rest of human history. Now, let me also kind of give you the first clue to what the abomination is all about, what it includes. Notice that what did Daniel say the Antichrist would do? This abomination? We're told that he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, though the prophecy in chapter 9 is, is somewhat vague, to further explain the abomination, what abomination the Antichrist would commit, Daniel uses this phrase, the abomination of desolation, again, in chapter 11, verse 31. And, and we're not going to read through the whole chapter. It's a pretty radical prophecy. But Daniel is describing the atrocious acts committed by a na man named 
uh, Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes, however you want to uh, state his name. And in this chapter, Daniel lays out some, some pretty prophetically awesome events. Daniel lays out, now, now keep in mind, he's, he's writing in the 600s. He's writing in the middle of Babylon. But he predicts the fall of Babylon to the Persians. Then Daniel predicts the fall of the Persians to another global empire, that being the, the Greeks. And in the midst of that, Daniel even sees the rise of a, of a ruler amongst the Greeks. He sees the rise and the conquest of Alexander the Great. In this prophecy, Daniel sees the fall of the Grecian Empire as it's divided into sections and the rise of the Roman Empire. In chapter 11, one leader in particular coming in the midst of this time frame would establish a framework by which Rome would emerge from Alexander's empire. The leader to do this is Antiochus Epiphanes. He would rule from 175 to 164 BC. Let me give you just a little bit of background, and this is going uh, a certain direction for a specific purpose and point, so follow with me. In 172, Antiochus attempted to Hellenize the Jewish people under his rule. To Hellenize means he, he wanted to strip them of Jewish culture and kind of make them Greek, give them Greek thought, Greek ideas, to worship Greek gods. To do this, he removed the legitimate high priest, a man by the name of Jason, and put in an imposter. This did not sit very well with the Jewish people. And in 169 BC, while Antiochus was campaigning in Egypt, Jason, the rightful high priest, would lead a revolt to take back Jerusalem and reverse the effects of Hellenization. Now, in 167, just two years later, Antiochus was in a foul mood. He had been whipped by the Egyptians. He had his tail between his legs. He comes back to Judea, finds the things he desired to be done being reversed by this guy he had removed who had come back to power. And so what ends up happening is Antiochus retakes Jerusalem. Now, uh, historically, we're given some insight into this by uh, not a book I would consider to be canon or part of Scripture. You do find it in the Catholic Bible, part of the Apocrypha. But from a historical angle, it gives us some important details. Second Maccabees chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, describing this period of time, we're told that raging like a wild animal, Antiochus set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met, and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of both young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. And in the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. Antiochus not only devastated the area, plundered Israel, but then he waged a singular assault on something the Jews held to be very true. He desecrated the temple. Now, all of this would end up in a revolt known as the Maccabean Revolution. But in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, 
we're told that during Antiochus' conquest of Jerusalem, Antiochus would, quote, defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation, which gives us our second clue. This word abomination appears 29 times in the Old Testament, and it always presents the idea of an unclean idol being set up and worshipped in the temple of God. One historian commented that Antiochus put to death anyone who worshipped God or studied the Torah. He brutally punished circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and eating kosher. He hung, fr- fr- he hung freshly circumcised baby boys who they had killed around their mother's necks. Here their little bodies rotted as a warning to others. In some cases, soldiers pushed mothers of circumcised boys off city walls to their deaths below. He killed anyone who would not eat pork. William Barclay says Antiochus desecrated the temple. It was a religious persecution, a religious assault. By offering wine's flesh, swine's flesh, on the great altar and by setting up public brothels and the sacred courts. Before the very holy place itself, he set up a great statue of the Olympian Zeus and ordered the Jews to worship it. Now here's the question. How do you connect Daniel's prophecies about Antiochus with the Antichrist? The answer. Initially, it would be easy to see how the abomination of desolation would have found maybe its fulfillment in the deeds of Antiochus. You could see that. However, in referencing Daniel, Jesus does something interesting, right? So Daniel writes extensively about the abomination of desolation. He mentions it in this period of seven years, yet still future. Preterists would like to point to the fact that Antiochus presented a deed that was the abomination of desolation, and thus it was fulfilled then. However, when Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is talking about the abomination of desolation, is he speaking in the past tense? No, he's not, is he? He's actually speaking in the future tense, telling them to look for a coming sign. Jesus viewed Daniel's prophecy as yet being unfulfilled. That's why he says, so when you see. I mean, how could the abomination of desolation have its fulfillment in Antiochus when Jesus seems to imply that it didn't? That its fulfillment was yet still future. David Guzik comments, to this point, he says, as bad as Antiochus' act was, it did not fulfill the abomination of desolation because Jesus said these words long after Antiochus. Though Daniel is clearly writing prophetically concerning Antiochus, his evil deeds would serve as a prophetic precursor to give us a clue what would be done by the Antichrist in the future. That's why Jesus is connecting these things back to Daniel. So, all that being said, what is the abomination? The abomination is not just that the Antichrist set up a temp- an idol in the temple, which had not been done before, but the fact Jesus says, look at it, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, I think we'll put it up, Jesus says that the idol would be standing where it ought not. It doesn't seem that the abomination is that he set up an idol 
but that he set up himself to be God. That this man entered the temple at the three and a half year mark and sat on a throne reserved for God alone and declared himself to be God. Paul seems to substantiate this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, that the Son of Man, the Antichrist, is revealed. The Son of Perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. And then note what Daniel says. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. According to scripture, the abomination of desolation, which occurs, as Daniel says in chapter 9, at the three and a half year mark, is when the Antichrist, foreshadowed by Antiochus, enters the temple, puts an end to sacrifice, the worship of God, sets himself up as Jehovah, and demands worship or immediate death. Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and 8, says that he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. It's the second three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blasphemy his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwelled on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The abomination of desolation is an act of the Antichrist so blasphemous and egregious that it singularly, singularly triggers the devastating judgments of God, the wrath of God. Before we get back to the Olivet Discourse, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, provides one more additional insight that we should consider. He writes, quote, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 120 uh, 1,290 days, excuse me, until the end. Jesus and Daniel seem to both say the same thing, that the abomination of desolation is the sign that the end is near. For when that event happens three and a half years from that moment, Jesus will return to earth in glory. And this position, by the way, has been historically, the most predominant position um, in church history. Writing in the late second century, uh, Christian writer uh, Irenaeus, he wrote this, but when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from, the he from heaven in the clouds and the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. Now, a side observation. This whole scenario does kind of leave a question, doesn't it? Prophetically, there is something missing for this to happen. I mean, it would be very hard to have the sacrifices to put an end to sacrifices, it would be hard to have this abomination without what that doesn't exist, a Jewish temple. 
Interestingly, that in the book of Ezekiel, we're given an an architectural design, a blueprint, of the third Jewish temple. Don't forget you had Solomon. Solomon's temple was the first. Then you had Zerubbabel's. Herod's was not the third. It was a remodel of Zerubbabel's. There is still yet prophetically a final temple described in Scripture, and yet we don't have it. On a side note, that's a fact preterists love to overlook and their eschatological position. Prophetically, sometime between now, today, and the abomination of desolation, a third temple will be built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. As a matter of fact, today, I've been there in Jerusalem. You can visit the Temple Institute where they have everything already prepped to immediately begin construction. They have menorahs built. They have all of the garments of the priests. They have already established a new sect of Pharisee. They are ready for the moment they're given the green light to build the temple. Everything is in order. And yet there are two things holding back their plans, right? One, the Temple Mount is not controlled by Israel, is it? It's controlled by the Muslims who won't allow the Jews to do anything on the Temple Mount, nor will they allow them to dig below the surface of the Temple Mount. Uh, They were doing illegal digs in the mid-90s in Hezekiah's tunnels looking for some of the, the temple treasure, thinking it was hidden. Bill Clinton had a slip of the tongue, and the Palestinian Authority came rushing in, kicked them all out, almost started a war, and concreted up all of these back tunnels. The the Muslims are afraid that if indeed temple treasure is found, dating back to Solomon, that it would give the Jews rightful claim to the piece of real estate because, well, Muhammad didn't come onto the scene until the 6th century AD. But there is a second problem, and that is the fact that there simply isn't a will within a very secular Jewish culture to build a temple. A recent poll had that only 40% of Jews are in favor of rebuilding the temple. You see, something will need to occur to overcome these two particular hurdles to deal maybe with the Muslim problem and also to deal with the lack of will. On a side note, and I would encourage you to study it, Ezekiel 38 and 39 seems to present another event that I think presents a miraculous intervention by God to save Israel from coming destruction that might very well pave the way for them to build a temple. Temple treasure being discovered, no doubt, would give away. Uh, It could be that the temple itself is part of the peace accord that signed for seven years. Either way, that is one thing that we can look for that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, Jesus continues, second half of verse 14, by explaining the two things that will now follow this sign. Then, so when you see the abomination of desolation, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the mountaintop not go into the house, nor enter to take out, uh, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter. Now what Jesus is describing 
is that from this abomination of desolation, there will be a mass exodus out of Judea following this atrocious act of the Antichrist. The Jews, the veil from their eyes is removed and they recognize two things. One, the Antichrist is simply a false Christ. And then secondly, that Jesus is the true Christ. And they will flee persecution into the mountains looking for refuge. In other passages, it would seem that the rock city of Petra, a city built by Edom, might be one of those refuge cities. You've all seen it. Seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, right? That rock city, the rock city of Petra. Most evangelicals so convinced that that's one of the locations have begun actually stocking it with perishables and, uh, and water and tracks and things, anticipating these things taking place. I think that's a bit silly, but whatever. Now, because of the reversal of fortunes, the Antichrist launching this Holocaust-style persecution and purging of the Jewish people, and, and you can read more about that in Revelation chapter 12, it adds just more weight to Jesus' exhortation for an immediate exodus. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 gives us something, an interesting tidbit about this, this time period. He indicates a supernatural protection of Israel, those fleeing Judea, by, Mar by Michael the archangel. Daniel writes, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21 tells us that Jesus will ultimately intervene into this persecution of the Jewish people by coming to crush the armies of the Antichrist, saving the Jewish people from destruction, this being known as the Battle of Armageddon. Now note, this exhortation has led some to believe that everything Jesus speaks of here was fulfilled in the first century when Rome in 70 AD sieged Jerusalem. It is true that this exhortation given by Jesus to Christians was taken literally because they saw the things happening and in 66 AD, when the Roman armies first came to Jerusalem, what did the Christians do? They fled to the Judean hills. They fled to the mountains and were actually spared the great destruction of 70 AD. And yet, trying to equate what Jesus is writing to as being fulfilled then uh, well, it's difficult for two reasons. One, in Luke 21, verse 36, another account of the same sermon, Jesus encouraged the disciples to pray that they would be counted worthy to escape this period of tribulation, to escape it, yet still future event. And, and then really, we know that the exodus and persecution follows what? The abomination of desolation, which did not occur uh, in the first century. Well, we're told that following all of this, a greater period of tribulation will ensue, verse 19, for in those days there will be tribulation. And then Jesus adds this qualifier, such has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened those days. Now, it's, it's my conviction that the first five sealed judgments 
and the first third of the Olivet Discourse describe the first three and a half years before the abomination, the beginning of sorrows. While the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments recorded in Revelation 8, 9, and 16 cover this second period of three and a half years, a period, Jesus says, of tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the creation. And let me give you just kind of a flyby description of these judgments as they're laid out in the book of Revelation. During the second three and a half years, one-third of all the vegetation will be burned up. One-third of the seas will become blood, killing one-third of the sea life and destroying one-third of the ships. One-third of the fresh water becomes blood, limiting the drinking water. One-third of the sun, moons, and stars are darkened. Great asteroids hit the planet. Locusts from the bottomless pit are loosed to torment humanity. It's the trippiest thing in the book itself. Then demons are loosed from the river Euphrates, given permission to kill a third of mankind. A loathsome sore comes upon all those who have taken the mark of the beast. The remainder of the sea and fresh water become blood. The sun scorches men with fire. The world is covered with supernatural darkness that torments man. There are incredible thunderings and lightnings. A great earthquake occurs, unrivaled from anything that's ever happened before. Such an earthquake that islands and mountains are removed. Great cities are laid to ruin. And then, cheery Sunday morning Bible study, great hundred-pound hailstones fall from the sky. Like, it's really true that, quote, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. Although the abomination of the Antichrist will spark a revival among the Jewish people, it's equally true that these events will cause some's faith to waver. Jesus continues, verse 21, Then if anyone, anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed... See, I have told you all things beforehand. Now, once again, there are those who see this reference as the elect, as being evidence that the church would go through this period of incredible judgment. However, they overlook the reality that Old Testament scriptural context often refers to the elect in every instance as being not the church, but the Jewish people. Isaiah 45, verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect... I have called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Isaiah 65, verse 9, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, speaking of Israel. During this period, there will be some who will waver and some who will give in. Jesus continues, verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest part of the earth to the furthest part of heaven. Now Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 22 that creation is groaning for its maker. It would appear that leading up to Jesus' second coming, creation is now screaming for its maker. 
this type of cosmic calamity Jesus references. It's mentioned in multiple Old Testament passages. Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, Amos 8, Zephaniah 1. Everything will build to one final crescendo. When Jesus comes again, his second coming, when he returns, destroys the armies of the Antichrist, restores a broken planet, binds Satan for a thousand years and establishes his millennial reign over the earth. Now next week, we're going to look at two parables that Jesus gives to kind of conclude this sermon. But before we get there, I want to close with an exhortation. You know, we're looking at end times events. We're looking at things that might not even include us. Uh, And there's a reason. We've kind of laid out several reasons. Uh, Our first reason we're looking at this is we made it clear that, you know, knowing the end, knowing what's what's coming should provide us motivation, context for today. It should make today more serious because it could be our last. Last week, our exhortation was really aimed at making a decision for Jesus. For there are those who think, I'll put it off to tomorrow. And yet you're given a glimpse on what potentially tomorrow looks like. Why wait? But this morning, in trying to apply this whole concept of the abomination of desolation, I, I, I really want to whittle it down to one simple idea. What is the one thing that Jesus calls, it, calls an abomination? It's when we put anything into a place reserved only for God. Yes, we can look at humanity and this abomination of desolation when the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple there in Jerusalem, declaring himself the God of this world. But what about you? Have you committed the same egregious act in your own life? Like there's a throne in your heart that only one person can sit on. We only serve one master. Is it Jesus or is it you? Is it Jesus' will that guides and dominates your life or is it yours? Jesus says it's an abomination when anything or anyone sits where I should be. And this reveals his, the, the seriousness. Because you know what often follows that abomination? What always follows it? Desolation. You can play God for a while. You can take that throne. You can sit there. I I don't know, I've just found I make a really pathetic God. I have no control over anything. Even my best intentions fly back in my face. Like I have a hard time overseeing me, ruling me. Myself is a rebel to I. It doesn't want to obey. Me as God, I make a mess of things. When I play God, the only thing I produce 
is desolation. And my relationships. Let me ask, if, if you have a problem in your relationship, a problem in your marriage, is it Jesus' fault? Like, has he failed to be a good God? Or is it that you kind of set him aside and you're God? Like, who's messing things up in your life? Jesus or you? If you're honest, you'll say, it's me. So the question is, will you allow Jesus to occupy the place that he deserves to occupy? Will you allow him to sit on the throne? Will you allow him to call the shots? Will you seek his will and his kingdom above anything else? Will you place your life into his hands and say, it's not mine anymore? All I, all I cause is destruction. I need a savior from me. Jesus has a rightful place, friend. But you concede the throne. The decision's yours. You can sit there or you can cede it. You can allow him to sit there or you can remain prideful and arrogant. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll predict what happens. Destruction. 